Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, and welcome to The Signal Light. Today's podcast is a community remote viewing discussion with Paul H. Smith on 26th of March 2021. Paul is a retired major in the United States Army and was a seven-year veteran of the Military Remote Viewing Program. He's author of the Remote Viewing Program's Coordinate Remote Viewing Training Manual, and he is also an author of Reading the Enemy's Mind, Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program and he also wrote The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. Paul is a founder and former president and director of IRVA, and Paul is currently president and chief instructor for remote viewing instructional services of Austin, Texas. Yeah, let me first off say welcome to everybody here. I see lots of familiar names. I see a number of familiar faces. Uh, glad to see you here, Tamara. Um, we have not been face-to-face even electronically in a long time. Um, I'm happy to greet quite a few of my uh, students, and I'm glad you guys came, and and everybody who isn't a student is just as welcome. So, all right, Um, I don't have any opening statements, so if you guys want to pop up with questions, we can start from there, or comments, as you know, uh, and and I don't even care if they're critical, as long as you're polite about it. I think the first one, if I get this right, is it Kiao? Have I got that? Have I got that yeah. right yet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're muted. I don't think he's muted, but I think his mic's not working. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, Kiao, we're not getting a sign from you. I think he's saying move on, and he'll figure it out. Okay. <clears throat> okay, then who 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 would like to go next? Well, maybe I'll start with I'll something. I'll oh, somebody's done. Okay. <laughs> oh, I thought somebody was there. I got a question for you, Paul. Actually, yeah. I got two. I'll try and be quick. Um, I can't remember if it was in the Essential Guide um, that I had read, but it was one of your books. I believe Bill was the monitor. I can't remember who was the viewer, uh, but there was some kind of mishap with the target number. This is back when you guys were using coordinates, you know, coordinate mm-hmm. remote viewing. And there was some kind of mishap and the wrong coordinate was given, but the viewer perceived the target accurately anyway. Hmm. Um, I was just wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit, a bit about that. Were you guys all surprised by that? Because to me, that seems like kind of like you guys stumbled into kind of an interesting big discovery. Well, um, <clears throat> that had actually happened with Ingo Swan much earlier. I don't recall it was Bill. I mean, there's an instance with Joe McMonigal. He was working something in Iran. My recollection is it was probably silkworm missiles because it was a perennial target we had trying to figure out where the Iranians had sashed their silkworm anti-ship missiles. Um, and the way the story went, I wasn't in on this, so I only got what was told uh, at the time, was that uh, the coordinate uh, was out in the middle of the desert. 
but the analyst who provided it was sure it was right on the facility he cared about. And so when Joe started reporting scrub brush and dirt, the um, analyst said, no, that's not right. There, he should be getting something. He must be wrong. And Joe said, of course, Joe, you know, you have to understand him. I mean, he wrote the book on ego, right? <laughs> Joe, Joe said, I'm absolutely right. If anything's wrong, it's you. <laughs> and now I'm paraphrasing, right? I'm paraphrasing. Um, and they did some more checking. And this, of course, before Google Earth, so uh, and even before GPS. So uh, lat longs using uh, geographic coordinates was kind of an inexact science. They discovered that, in fact, the coordinate they had given Joe was actually out in the middle of the desert. Um, so that's one instance where the, the viewer did exactly what he was told to do. Now, there are other instances. One particular was the Wadingo Swan, where the, uh, it was uh, Kyrgyzland Island was the target. And, and they targeted Ingo on this island, but the, but the coordinate was actually about 30 miles offshore. And so, um, so what happened was Ingo said, well, there's nothing here but water. But over here, there's an island. And so we went over and explored the island. And it's a classic session. That's where he introduced this process called trackers, where you just kind of intuitionally follow the shape of something at the target with your pen, making little dots. And, um, and it turned out to be an awesome target. And he was absolutely correct. In fact, he revealed some stuff that we're not known publicly about. It turned out it was a joint French-Russian weather station. Now, you got to ask, what were the French doing in bed with the Soviets? <laughs> you just never know about those guys, you know? Um, and I know, I'm sure there's French people here, and I really in, enjoy France. But this was a weird situation where the French and the Russians were collaborating back when it was still the Soviet Union, but Ingo got it right, you know, and there are instances where the viewer may get the wrong tasking. It happens less today because we're not using geographic coordinates. Uh, but back when we were using geographic coordinates, um, it happened periodically that they would some, you know, they provide the wrong coordinate and the viewer would nonetheless get the right target. And the reason for this is that the real train driver in this is, is the tasker's intentions. And if the tasker is careful enough about framing the intentions, then the viewer subconscious picks up on that and it will give you the right answer in many cases, not always, but in many cases will give you the right answer even if the tasker has screwed some part of it up, as long as the, as long as the intention is clear. Thanks, Paul. One, one more quick one, if you, if you don't mind. Um, I think it's interesting that viewers have a hard time conceptualizing or viewing numbers directly, um, other than like associative remote viewing. And yet the CRP protocol actually starts with writing a, a target number down mm -hmm. and then the ideogram. And, and there doesn't seem to be a problem making a connection at that level. Uh, between like the pre-conscious or, or subconscious, whatever you want to call it. Do you have any thoughts as to why that might be, why, why that connection is so e easily established? And, and yes, because yet... that actually doesn't have anything to do with a number. The value of the number, if you do it in an abstract way or, some, or a random, semi-random kind of approach, is that you don't duplicate a tasking ever, right? So th it's been very well demonstrated that you could use just the word target and the viewer would in usually successfully at least address the target to some degree. Um, 
but of course, the problem is that if you start using target all the time, it refers to about 15 different things you may task a viewer on over a given number of days. <clears throat> and so then there might be a chance of some kind of ambiguity develop as to what which particular target the tasker has in mind. Um, another way they used to task was they would put a, if they were looking for a person, they would put a photo of the person in an opaque envelope and present the envelope to the viewer and say, remote view the location of, in this case, the individual that's in the target. Um, and that worked fine too. But there are times when you can't do that or you don't want to do that. There are times after a while using target all the time is may end up with confabulations and stuff. So we started using numbers. With the lat longs, of course, the intention was clear. You go where the coordinates point, literally, uh, and describe, okay? Um, when we started using encrypted coordinates, there's a lot of reasons for that. Now, when I say encrypted coordinate, a lot of folks call them target reference numbers today. I think it was some term Ed Dames introduced. It's not a bad term. Uh, it's at least as good as coordinate because they aren't really coordinates anymore, right? Um, but we call them coordinates because we were used to that, right? But they're just essentially arbitrary numbers that are stand for the intention. And so when you um, then produce that number for the viewer, it isn't, the numbers have no meaning at all. You think about it, it's absolutely true. It's an arbitrary number and it just stands for the tasking. The numbers don't refer to anything, okay? So they become just an object, a tasking object, if you will. And so the viewer subconscious recognizes a number pattern, goes down to the universe to find out what that number is linked to, discovers it's linked to this intention from a tasker, and then proceeds to uh, direct the viewer to address whatever the, the target is. And so um, the other way doesn't work as well, though, obviously, because uh, when you're trying to produce numbers, like for a lottery or a street address or something like that, that those have to be cognized. This number, the tar target reference number or coordinate, doesn't have to be cognized. You verbalize it just to fix it in your sensory apparatus, but generally speaking, you don't have to recognize anything about what that number in and of itself means. But when you're trying to get an address or a lottery number or whatever, then you do have to cognize it. And that's fully a left brain function. I'll say fully. There's, there's a small participation of the right brain, but it's largely a left brain function. And of course, we know that's where all the noise comes from, generally speaking, is the left brain. And so the, the left brain interpreter, as, as uh, Michael Gazzaniga calls it, uh, gets in there, starts guessing and figuring and everything, and you end up with a garble when, it, when you're trying to produce a number. So it works one way, but it doesn't work the other way, just basically because of our neurological, neurophysiological makeup. I think I spewed out a lot of stuff there. I hope I didn't confuse everybody. Did that get it, David? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thank you. you bet. Well, I see a couple of hands. I don't know who was first. It was Demi or... Or Jana? I think, I think it was J Jana first, yes. Okay. Or is, or is it Jana? Yeah, Jana. No problem. <laughs> um, um, as Monty Python would say, now for com something completely different. Um, my question is, uh, what do you think about um, using monitored sessions versus solo sessions? Um, means how would you see the function of a monitor in general? And when is it necessary to use a monitor? Okay, so uh, on my end, it got a little bit garbled. What kind of sessions? Monitored sessions. Oh, okay. With a monitor, yeah. First, the solo sessions. Yeah. Okay, so here's the bottom line. It's all, if you have a good monitor, if you have a monitor, knows what they're doing. It's always better to have a monitor than to do solo. 
we established out of Fort Meade, we had a whole series of monitor sessions, a whole series of solo sessions. The monitored ones always work better. And they, that's another thing they came up with at SRI. In a lot of the SRI literature, you'll see that having, they call them interviewers back then, I think, having a monitor interviewer always, I say always, you know, there's always the outliers, but generally speaking, they always produce better results. And I think the reason for that is, uh, there's probably a lot of reasons, but the ones I think are most likely, even if the monitor is blind, so we have a double blind setting, right? And the reason is, first of all, viewers tend to get lazy, right? They get reach a certain point and say, oh, that's enough, and they'll quit, right? A monitor can always keep you going, push you a little bit further, push you a little bit further, you know, and get you that to, uh, to produce something else. The monitor can also tell, uh, oftentimes an outside observer can tell when a viewer's wandering off into imagination quicker than the viewer recognizes it. And so a good monitor will notice that and then have some tricks or techniques to get the viewer back on signal line, even if the monitor doesn't know what the target is. And so generally speaking, if you have the option to have a monitor, take it, right? But now here's the problem. So first of all, not all monitors, not all people trying to monitor know what they're doing. That's one problem. And another problem is that, that by and large, particularly in this very dispersed remote viewing world we have, you don't always, or maybe even often have the opportunity to have a monitor with your sessions. Um, with my students, I, when I talk about their homework, uh, so the homework goes like this. Um, they go home with a, a target reference number, okay, with a, with a coordinate. They do the session, they mail it back to me, I mark it up with a red pen, then I send the, 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 the red, you know, the corrected, if you will, session back to them along with the next thing. And we do that for 10 iterations, okay? So the last day I give an explanation how we work this process. And part of that is to tell them how they could work with a monitor, even if they're not an experienced monitor, if they have someone in their personal lives that can help them, like a spouse or a friend or whatever. And a lot of my students are able to do that. And that's even helpful, even if they, I tell them what they have to tell the monitor, how they have to guide the monitor to, 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 to manage them properly so that it doesn't get messed up. But, but still, by, some of them are able to take advantage of that. And they generally seem to enjoy better results when they have a monitor, even when the monitor is blind, okay? So, but you can't do that. Probably the vast majority of people don't have access to monitors. And a lot of the stuff I do on my own, I don't have a monitor anymore. Um, I do stuff with Alexi Champion and he monitors me over Skype and that works pretty good actually, much to my surprise. Um, but but generally speaking, you just have to, whatever option works best, you, you have the resources for, that's kind of how you have to do it, so. Yes, we, we use Skype monitoring uh, here as well and uh, good to hear <laughs> that you use it too, yeah. I'm sorry, YouTube? Yeah, yeah, we do that often. Via Skype uh, when we are not next to each other. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Which we probably need to uh, Skype or Zoom or something at some point. Um, Where I don't know. Can I reveal this <laughs> about my book? Is that all right? Mm. Okay. Mm. So we're talking about getting a German edition of my uh, essential guide out, and and I'm working with Jana and Theo on that, and. Uh, I kind of thought I ought to bring that up because that might get some interest from many German speakers out there. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. The Germans have uh, mostly very uh, big uh, problems to to get into English language, mm -hmm. and um, 
ja, auf or, Deutsch. Or, or Americans do with German language too. Ja, so. ja. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We will do our best. Okay. Yeah. Well, Demi's been waiting patiently. I guess we probably get to her, huh? Thank you, sir. And congratulations for your book, for your new book about to. We'll <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have a question regarding the protocol of uh, retasking. Uh, oh. in a session about a gestalt or about a certain information and if there is an, quite an algorithm or to do or not to do stuff and uh, to do or not to do um, when doing the session, when you are retasked, what do you, you don't have to do this, but you must do this, that. <clears throat> well, so. let me first ask you to kind of explain to me what your understanding of retasking is. How do you understand retasking? Uh, get better information and descriptors and sketches. Okay. All right. So in other words, the viewer has produced a session. Yeah. The analyst says, okay, and it could even be the tasker, but whoever it is that does it looks at the session and says, okay, um, and I'll assume double blind here. Okay. Um, The viewer said this, 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 and this. These things don't sound particularly interesting, but this thing sounds really intriguing. Um, I would like to know more about that. And so then that person goes back in and asks the viewer to expand or elaborate on that. Element. Yes, that exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Good. <clears throat> so this is something uh, Russell probably well remembers from our operational remote viewing class we taught a couple of years ago. Um, that's a very important part of operations because Viewers generally start off general and become more specific as you dig into things. And so the first session or two may be on, but it isn't on enough for you to solve the problem. And so they'll say something in those sessions that the analyst says, okay, they're on track here, but we need more detail for it to be useful. So what they'll do is they will go in and they will be very careful about how they do this. They will not say, you're absolutely right about this. Now tell us more. That would be the wrong thing to do right? because then the viewer will start, you know, their brain will wrap up, right, wind up and they'll start coming up with all kinds of AOLs and noise and stuff. <clears throat> what the, what the, uh, and this is just a very rough description of what happens. Uh, there's more nuances to it, but generally speaking, what the analyst should do uh, is in fact say on page five of your session, you mentioned a tall, round, pink object that made a humming sound. I'm making this up, right? Made a humming sound. Uh, please access and describe in more detail what you perceive, this perception, okay? Uh, yes, but I, I mean the uh, remote viewer, what, what has to do? The, at that point, the remote viewer Um, and, and of course, that partly depends on the experience level of the viewer. It partly depends on their own pre preferred process. And the more experience the viewer gets, the more authority in terms of success they get. Then they can actually kind of tweak the, their approach. There's not a in CRV or in, not in any of the modalities, not even a CRV, is there a specific way you do this? In my case, what I would do is I would get a piece of paper, several pieces of paper, <laughs> probably, um, and I would write down um, 
let's see, how would I do this? I would write, I can't remember what I said, large pink round thing that hums or something like that, right? And I would use that as my tasking, as my target reference number, as my coordinate, whatever. I'd use that as a queuing mechanism, I guess. So the, what happens here is I haven't been told anything new about the target, right? So I'm totally unwitting to anything I might get. The only thing I know is it was of interest to the analyst. So that's a added piece of information that this may be more correct than some of my other stuff. Or it may just mean the analyst doesn't know what it is, but feels like it might be worth finding out. So I have to play with my head a little bit and say, maybe this is actually on, or maybe it's just an exploratory thing from the analyst. And it could be either one. And then I'll write that down, and then I'll see what perceptions come in. Uh, it, by this point, we're probably in stage four, maybe even in stage six. And so, um, you know, I'd probably have a matrix and going through all the detailed stuff. But um, now, that that's, I, I should say, there's... I mean, this is very, a very relatively complex answer. Uh, that's the way I do it if it was fairly recent, like if I had done the session an hour or two before, right? Now, if it was a week later, I would probably retake the original coordinate. I would go through a quick stage one, two, and three into four. And then when I felt like I had a lock on the place again, then I would use that cue I put brackets around it so I, so anybody reading it would know that I had introduced that to the session, right? I put brackets around it, around that queue, and then I proceed the way I just described. So there's kind of two different things to consider there. Thank you very much. Now I'm clear. Okay. <laughs> okay, I guess, Kiao, it's your turn if you're back with the mic. Can you hear anything? Yep. Good. Okay, um, uh, doctor, maybe all this questioning is really, really good I, to I keep I have to say this. I have to say this. You know, I like doctor, but my <laughs> father-in-law said when I, got, when I graduated, when I got my PhD, my father-in-law said, what good are you? You're a doctor who still can't prescribe anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I kind of I look at knowledge and truth as a part of trying to get wisdom, so that's a bit of a prescription. And uh, hey, there you go. And uh, as, after being really good friends with the gentleman that lived to 106, who was extremely sharp all the way through, uh, I just wanted to mention that all this poking and quizzing we're doing might keep you here for another 80 years, which would be pretty cool. So, so I, once had, I once had a refrigerator magnet that said, God put me on earth to do a certain number of things. At the rate I'm going, I'm never going to die. <laughs> cool. Perfect. Okay, so it's a loaded question, and I hope it's not too far out in left field. If, if my notes are correct, at one time you took the gateway, and maybe that was in the 80s. I don't know when. Um, so it's kind of here, here goes the question, because I've got it written out in a formal style. Uh, but, of course, you know what you're doing. So here's the question. I'm asking about tips for moving information alone with no monitor from the trance state and dreams. Also about tasking or getting information from within the trance state or, or dream state. My priority is documenting correct, precise, practical information from the psychic world from whichever state of consciousness works. And I'm usually, of course, in one of those three states, wake state, trance zombie, nodding off state, or of course, dreaming while sleeping state. Well, I'd argue you're never in a zombie state. <laughs> Maybe. Because if you're in a zombie state, by definition, there's no mental activity and there's no way that you can produce anything. 
accomplish at all, right? Okay, so the second thing is, I probably not the best one to ask this kind of question because I never work in those states, right? I start off uh, strictly with a remote viewing or well, ERV, when I, I haven't done that in a long time, but when I did ERV, I suppose you could say I was in a kind of a, well, a hypnagogic state. It's not exactly a trance state. You're still pretty aware of everything, right? But <clears throat> um, I, my initial response from someone without a lot of expertise in what you're asking is that the, probably the only way to do it is to write it down as you remember it once you come out of those states, mm -hmm. right? Um, you have to objectify. That's a key in, in CRV is objectification making, turning a, a thought into a something concrete, a re concrete record, right? And in, in particularly in a state where you're like in a trance or OBE or any of that stuff, you have to get whatever you experience down immediately because as is the nature of dreams and everything else, it fades fairly quickly. So um, if you're going to provide any information, at least to the external world, the mind external world, You've got to get it down as soon as you can so that it is as fresh as possible in your mind. And that's about all I can tell you. If there's some other mode, I, I don't know what it is. That's great. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for that. Uh, I think, Don, you're up next. Not Don oh. again. Oh, my God. All right, here we go. I've got this written out. Um, I guess I'm going to have to read it over here. It must be going to be long. <laughs> um, all right, we got into this a little bit the last time, the nature of remote viewing numbers and I guess abstract information as opposed to people, places, and things. And um, I was wondering if this has given you any sort of insight into the way remote viewing works. In other words, does signal data need to be attached to some something physical as opposed to abstract information that might not be. And I realize this is a theoretical thing, but I bet you do have an opinion on it. Well, if I don't, I'll make one up. <laughs> so um, if I'm understanding your question correctly, um, you're, you're kind of dividing the line between persons, places, and things and uh, what Ingo called analytics or alphanumeric, so letters and words and, and uh, numbers, right? Yeah. Uh, it depends on what you mean by persons, places, and things. If you mean by persons, the actual physical individual standing there in front of you, that's one thing. If you mean that person by name, that's an abstract too, right? Mm -hmm. If you mean this uh, huge geological formation where there's tons of H2O pouring over the edge, making a thunderous noise and a lot of spray. That's one thing. If you call it a waterfall, it's an, it's a uh, abstract, right? Because right. what happens is our use of nouns, nouns are always analytic results. The, your, your right brain perceives um, this huge, curving, water pouring over the top, thundering spray thing, and sees it as it is. Your left brain gets what the right brain is developing from the sensory experience and says, oh, that's Niagara Falls, right? What has happened is the left brain has taken thundering, water, pouring, horseshoe-shaped, uh, a certain way of, of, you know, like wider than it is tall, all the different features that identify Niagara Falls, and it says, 
All of those things equal my understanding of the thing that is named Niagara Falls. Okay, so that's a proper noun. It's a noun. Every noun is a composite, an analytic response to a set of data that then the left brain processes and comes to the conclusion of what that represents. Okay. okay, so a number does not have that set of data then. Is, it I guess, does is, not have that, but it is equally abstract because it does stand for concept. So the, the letter that, or the number that goes, I don't know which way you're going to see this on the screen, that goes like this, right, that has a shape. And what that shape does is it conveys to your left brain a quantity of three. Okay. So that's an analytical response to the shape of that thing. And interestingly, you came up with the shape of that thing because someone observed there were three of something and then they went and went into their left brain and said, what do I use to identify three of something? Oh, it's this letter that's shaped like that. Yeah. So is this making sense to you? you well, okay, so I guess what I was after is... Uh... Yeah, I, I know I wasn't actually answering your question, but we're laying some groundwork to hopefully I can, because now you need to tell me what the question is again. Okay. The, the, the question is, if you're in a normal remote viewing session, at least yeah. the ones that I've done, it, yeah. it seemed like the data was associated with something physical, real, oh, right. intangible. Yeah. Whereas, um, I guess the conclusion presented last time was that numbers are hard. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to sort of like, get into that a little bit. Why is it hard? Is it because they're okay. not attached to anything physical like like yeah. so, a, a box? So yeah, I got I get it, I get it. So okay. what it boils down to, uh, numbers are hard for different reasons. Okay. They're hard because they're all left brain constructs, which goes back to my long explanation just a minute ago. Left brain constructs. Yeah. Okay. And the left brain is where the noise comes from. And the left brain doesn't have any actual veridical da data. The data comes through the right brain because that's where the sensory stuff starts to coalesce, right? The sensory input. Now, it just so happens you're getting sensory input, but it's not coming through your senses. We won't get into that right now. <laughs> but but uh, generally speaking, you can get stuff that isn't connected with a sensory experience. Um, so let's see, let me think of an example. It, and it happens in stage four. It can happen a little in stage three, but then you AOL it for reasons I won't get into. Um, you get into stage four and you're getting lots of physical qualities of this thing. You know, it's a structure, it's red, it's hard, it's hollow. There's a humming sound, all this stuff. All those are physical characteristics. Those are perceptual elements that you can perceive and understand, okay? Uh, understand in a perceptual way. Um, but then you can also get stuff like secure. I'll tell you right now, there is no physical element that is that that represents secure. Mm -hmm. Now there are things that might make you deduce security, like barbed wire fences and people with guns and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but the concept of secure is an abstract concept, complex concept, comes out in in uh, the I column in stage four, right? And you can get all kinds of these things. These become not perceptions; they become, and I don't have another word to, for it. I may have heard something, but all I say is it's a kind of a knowing. You just sort of know mm. that this is true of the target. Tourist, you know, uh, tourism, um, educational, um, you know, those kinds of things. And there's tons of them. There's tons of them. Governmental, whatever. 
All of those things come in and they aren't represented by any sensory experience you had. They're things you just know exist that know are true of this target. So the fact that they're left, left brain conceptions, I guess, that's the thing, the really. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. I think that answers the question, actually. Okay, good. So let me, let me hold forth a little bit more on this because this all has to do with the aperture. Now, I don't hear aperture discussed very much out there in most of the other RV uh, modalities, but it's a very important concept in CRV. Uh, and it applies to all the other modalities. They don't pay, just don't pay any attention to it, right? So um, aperture is is the, it's a little ambiguous in, in Ingo's uh, instruction, but generally speaking, I think of it as the portal through which the non-local data becomes available for processing by your mental apparatus. And everything your remote view is going to at some point have to be processed by your neurophysiological processing, right? Um, so, but there's this portal between the non-local and the local, if you will. When you first start off in a remote viewing session, it's very narrow. You have very narrow bandwidth that you only get limited information and it's a very general nature, gen usually speaking, right? Um, that's stage one. As you get deeper into the session, that aperture opens up. And so you get more information through and two things happen. The bandwidth increases, so you get more data and the dwell time increases. Dwell time meaning how long that the signal stays with you at that point. In stage one, it's just a series of flashes. In stage two, the flashes are a little bit slower. You get into stage three, they're even slower yet. You get into stage four, it's possible to have the aperture kind of fully open and fully providing information. So you go from narrow bandwidth to wide bandwidth, small amount of information throughput to a large amount of information throughput. So what happens with an AOL? So hold that off to the side. What happens with an AOL? So in an AOL, what happens is the brain, and I think maybe we talked about this last week when I just kind of dropped in and started spewing nonsense. So anyway, um, with an AOL, what happens is the left brain gets a chunk of information, a very quick chunk of information. And the left brain's job, again, I'll go back to Michael Gazanig, a really well-known research psychologist, uh, talked about the left brain having this module in it. Uh, we can't identify where it is, but the function is there. He called it the left brain interpreter. The left brain's job is to interpret the data it gets. That's what it's supposed to do. And in everyday life, it does it really well. But anytime you have a small, small amount of information and the left brain tries to interpret it, it things go bad. And you can imagine. I mean, I use the example of you're in a dinner party, you go up, you hear one half of the last sentence that one of your friends is saying to somebody else after a half hour long conversation. You say something absolutely stupid because you jump to a conclusion about what they were talking about based on that little piece of conversation. Left brain does that all the time. That's where AOL comes from when the bandwidth is small. When you get to stage four, the bandwidth is opened up wider. So at that point, the interpretations are much more likely to be correct. And in fact, in many cases, they are correct in stage four, as long as you've done everything right. Now, a lot of people hmm. rush into stage four and they'll be all over the map and the stuff they come up with. But if you've done it right and you've allowed the process to induce you into the proper altered state, if you will, um, the nouns that you use in stage four fit into one of four categories. They can be a T for a tangible, that would be a building, that would be a gun, that would be a bottle of, I don't know, olive oil, whatever. Those are 
Those are tangibles. Or it will be uh, security, or it will be tourism, or it will be, uh, if you think of some good ones, Russell or-, or So there's, that's the conceptual part coming in right there. But it's not really, well, yeah, it, it, I guess you could say that. It, it's not exactly conceptual. It's, it's, it's the way the brain does things even in everyday life, right? Uh, I guess I guess you could call it conceptual. Well, uh, I don't have a better name for it. Yeah, and at the moment I don't either. But that's what I get when I'm when I'm uh, talking on my feet. Well, I'm not on my feet, but oh well. Anyway, <laughs> go on. You know, um, so those things. Okay, so there's the, there's the tangible, there's the intangible, which are the well, I call them abstract uh, complex. Uh, con yeah, I guess they're concepts. And then they could go into a well signal, which is a place you can put a noun that you know is not quite right, but has something true about it that matches the target, okay? Also in stage three called AWOL matching, right? So AWOL signal is, is data of a sort. The final one, of course, is AOL. And you only put things in there that you're virtually absolutely sure are AOL. Anything mm -hmm. else that you're doubting but don't feel as straight data goes into AOL signal. So there are places you can put nouns in stage four that you're allowed to use nouns in stage one through three, you're only you're not allowed to use nouns. You have to call every noun you encounter as an AOL because it is an analytical result of your brain processing. Okay, so that was see, okay. If you ever think you're asking me a simple question, sometimes you are, sometimes you aren't. <laughs> uh, actually, you maybe we had to dance around the fire in order to get a an idea of how to re respond to this, which is actually pretty cool. So, um, or, or to become well done, right? You, you talk yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I think that that sort of got it. Okay. All right. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks for that one, Paul. Um, I'll, I'll read one out uh, before we go to the next people because it's been here a while on the chat list. And it's from Grin, but he's gone now. And he asked a question if someone is viewing their feedback instead of the target, uh, what would you recommend for them to change that habit? Well, of course, that depends on why they're doing the remote viewing in the first place. If they're doing an ARV, you don't want them to change it, right? Because that's what the point is, right? And in science experiments, that's often the point as well. You get a lot of confusion between um, the SAIC, SRI, uh, LFR, you know, EDMAY and those folks, confusion about what's going on here because in their setting, very often they want you to remote view their feedback rather than the actual live target. And the reason is because in a science setting, you want to eliminate as many variables as you can so that you can evaluate the success of the session. And if the target is the Eiffel Tower, uh, the viewer might well be producing real information, but it's outside of the scope of the, of the feedback they've got. And the, and the scientists can't tell if they're on or not. So you want to restrict the perceptual pool for the viewer so that they will report on only what the scientists can evaluate. Okay. So oftentimes you, you know, both in science and in ARV, you want to remote view the food feedback. It's really only in operational and operational training settings where you care whether you're remote viewing the feedback or not, but it's a very important thing. So what happens if you find you're remote viewing your feedback? Well, <clears throat> I hate to say this, but you have to decide what your career in remote viewing is. Okay. First off, you can be a committed ARVer, or you can be a committed operational remote viewer, but it's very hard to be both. 
Okay, because the goal in each one is different than the other, and they're completely orthogonal. In operational, you want to go to the target. In in ARB, you want to go to the feedback. If you go to the feedback in an operational remote viewing session, you are absolutely useless to the to the project manager to to, to the customer, the client, because they already know what's in the feedback. They want to know what's not in the feedback. Yeah. yeah. So you have to. Uh, it, it, and so if you do a lot of ARVing, you get in that habit of doing the feedback. You also get a little bit lazy. I'm going to write a blog. I know I've got about 15 blog topics I promised to write, and I haven't got to any of them yet. <clears throat> I want to write a blog about the problems with ARV if you want to be an operational remote viewer. Uh, you get into ARV, you also get a little bit lazy because all you have to do in ARV to be successful is to remote view and describe the correct image or object, depending on what process you're using, so that the judge can decide which one is the one to choose, okay? And it doesn't take much if you're on, it doesn't take much to do that. In fact, the more, the longer you dwell on an ARV session, the more problems you generate for the judge because then they've got a whole bunch of data they've got to sort through, some of which is on and some of which is isn't, some of which might actually match the distractor. So you, you want to remote view an ARV session to be relatively short. Okay. Now, there's a such thing as too short as well, but you want it to be relatively short. In an operational session, you want it to be long yeah. because you want to generate data. And so those two things are kind of in conflict. So you decide, do I want to be an ARV or? Okay, do, uh, I'll do that. Do I want to be an operational viewer? Okay, I'll do that. You know, but to, it's really hard to do both. Trust me, I've tried to do it. I've seen other people try to do it. It's really a challenge. So Yeah, thanks for that, Paul. I think that perfectly answers this question because... Uh, what you didn't know is um, it's in reference to a target that I set Grin um, and we had a dialogue today because he was worried that he was removing his feedback and he was worried because he's been spending a lot of time doing ARV more than uh, anything else. Okay. Yeah. So that's great. Well, there, there might be more I could say to that, but, but we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, I'll save some, some uh, talk time for other questions. <laughs> Excellent. I think uh, Dimi's uh, up again next. Uh, she's had her hand up for quite a while and then Cindy after that. <clears throat> no, sorry. I will. I will pass over <laughs> because I, I forgot my hand uh, right, raised. <laughs> sorry, okay. sorry, Cindy, sorry. Cindy, you're up next. Then all right. I was hoping it would be your turn, Cindy. <laughs> now you're muted, so I can do that. Hi, Paul. You know, I think that's the quietest that I've ever heard Cindy be. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I, it's nice to see you. And hi, everybody. My first time. It's nice to see so many women. Yay. Um, I had a, a response to the gentleman. I don't remember his name. I don't even know if he's still here now. Who asked about Gateway. Is he still here? That's Kiao, I think, wasn't it? Okay. Um, I'm a multi course graduate um, of the Monroe Institute. About that much I wanted to be a trainer, but I moved to Mexico and that made my life difficult. So I will address something that he asked. And what I think he was trying to find out is how to move information that he received in um, a guided state and bring that out into reality. Uh, I, I think that's what he said. I would not 
try to remote view while in an altered state via the Monroe methods, because for me, in my experience, when you're in an altered state, if you don't go in and ask, if you don't have a specific question to ask when you're in an altered state, you're going to just get, you get all kinds of stuff and stuff you didn't ask for, stuff you don't always want. And sometimes you just end up falling asleep. So the only way to get information from one of those states that I am aware of that is reliable and real is to go in with a question in mind to ask once you hit one of those, that particular focus level and have a tape recorder handy and repeat or, or say what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're hearing, just like you would be reporting to a monitor. But I don't think I would try to do a remote viewing task in that state, simply to me because it's too open to a lot of things. So it sounds to me, in a way, you could put it this way, that you become your own tasker in that kind of environment. You set your yes. task in advance. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, but, but then, and I think the idea about the tape recorder is good. Uh, Whenever we did ERVs at Port Mead, um, there was always a, a tape recording going because that was the way, you know, the viewer would verbalize. Of course, then the secretary would have to go back and try and transcribe that. And, and uh, Skip always said Joe talked like he had a mouthful of mush the whole time. So, which is true. I've heard. Enunciate. <laughs> yeah. When you're in that state, you don't. I mean, I even. Yeah. You can't. You kind of. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. But have the tape recorder going is very important if you can verbalize while you're doing it. But I think still my answer is relevant in that as soon as you're done, write down everything you remember, right? Yes. But, but I think your point, the, the really valid point here, the most important point to this is that you need to go in with a clear intention as to what it is that you're trying to explore. Uh, right, because if you're at a certain, there are certain focus levels that you just kind of go and hang out, chill and enjoy the relaxation. It's yeah. kind of like going to the beach out there. But there, you know, there are focus levels for asking for help. There are focus levels for searching for answers. And if, if you have a specific question, then you go to that focus level and you bring that question and you verbalize that question. So the tape recorder picks it up. Yeah. And then you verbalize anything that you get. And then when you come out of your focus level um, and you have to come out, I, in my experience, to be able to actually write something that makes sense. Uh, otherwise, it's it's gibberishy writing. It, it makes no sense at all. Even I've been there in that state, gibberishy writing. It's like, I can't so, write. <clears throat> I, wanna, I want to uh, riff off of uh, Kia for a minute here and, and say that I think he also had my not just a remote view or not a... Uh, Monroe Institute focus kind of a, pro, a process, but beyond that into even some more ethereal kinds of things or more traditional trans kind of, uh, of ESP or intuitional environments. So, uh, but, but what you just said actually can apply very much in those as well. I mean, you can say- I don't really now. see, except for a nomenclature, um, yeah. that some of those focus levels in the Monroe levels are, are what we would call trance states. I mean, they're very close to shamanic states. It all depends on whether you're active in it or passive. Um, they are altered states, and, but yet you still have control. So if you're going in for something, <clears throat> go for it and ask for it and, and try and write it down when you come out. But I wouldn't, 
I just can't imagine going re- remote viewing yeah. in a Monroe focus level. I use it to start off and then I'm out. And yeah. When I can write oh, again, uh, I'll try to view. Sure. I, I get a kick out of those, uh, those focus states where you go in and kind of wander around. Cause that sounds like yeah. an unfocused focus state, doesn't it? Yes. It's cool. I don't know. It depends on where you're wandering. I just kind of like to go and hang out and float. I find it very relaxing. I wake up quite refreshed. Okay. <laughs> All right. I get jarred by Nancy's voice at the end where it's or Bob used to say, Focus what? Wake up. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Dang it. Ruined another good nap, Bob. Yes. Darn it. Woke me up. So that's just my two cents on using the focus okay. levels to remote view. I don't, I, I think they're good for all kinds of stuff, but RVing, I, I think they're too soft and you get too much. Gotcha. Okay. Good. So uh, Kia, I think, wants to respond to that, but is there someone else who has actually been begging for hours and hours to get on? Take my, I'll take my hand down. Okay. I guess Kia can talk. Kia was next. Yeah, he's 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 up. Okay, let's let's hope I can get it out quickly. Um, it's it's I, I was asking the doctor because he knows so much about CRV and of course uh, with Ingo and, and all of those uh, great gentlemen. And yeah, I've also heard the video of I've seen the video and uh, with Skip tasking uh, Joseph and I don't know when it was from, but it was from a long time ago. And he's blah, 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 like he's just how can you figure it out? So I guess I guess to uh, Cindy, I would be stating it's also a, a part of the art of learning how to talk in your sleep. Also that it seemed to me that I had to, and I don't, I can't talk about it now as I know what I'm doing. I've just asked Joseph this and I'm asking you this. So I'm just learning, but it seems like you also have to invent the protocol for getting out. That's the main issue is getting out with the information. I can grasp it in that other state, but um, you know, of course, uh, Joe in, in, in five words or less to paraphrase a guy who answered a very completely thing in a lot amount of time, he just said CRV is easier and better for getting clear, direct, precise information. Uh, but I find myself in these situations and I can find information. So one protocol I invented, I think each person has to invent their own one, is that when I know I have it to come flying out of the dream uh, and ready to kick down five down, kick down five doors, because like, you know, in some Western Bruce Lee movie or whatever, because uh, Joe says, and this is true, my experience is, is that you can't, you lose it as you're getting from the dream state or the trance state to, you know, this state. So whatever. I, I was just curious because I know you know a lot. So thank you. Yeah. And I want to say something. I, I think that Jackie Chan's the only Chinese martial artist who's ever done Western, isn't he? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> okay. All right. And we have a hand from Chris. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy's first, though, I think. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, Mr. Jim. Yeah. I, I can wait. Let Chris go first. Oh, no, don't fight over it. <laughs> and it goes out. Somebody's going to forget what they want to say. Let's do rock clippers. Let's do the best of us. Okay, go ahead, Chris. Jimmy's being being nice. Okay, this is an easy one. I keep looking at that that spoon painting you did and that spoon oh. bending is driving me crazy. I don't know if it's if it's real or an illusion or psychokinesis. So let, me you, let me tell you the history of that painting. Um, every one of those, the, every piece of silver on there is modeled after a real one that was really bent in essentially spoon bending circumstances. 
all of them bent by people I knew. I painted that painting. That was so I had majored in art at Brigham Young University years ago, and um, I hadn't done much oil painting. I'd done a lot of watercolor, and I wanted to get into oil painting, inspired by Ingo Swan, because when I walked in and saw his painting Millennium in his basement. Now, it, it, I have a blog post about this. It's just so profound. Um, and uh, let me put in a blog, remote view, plug, remote viewing slash remote perception blog. There's a ton of articles on that. And one of these is about Millennium, his painting. But when I went and saw his painting, I realized that's the kind of art I had wanted to make my entire life. I had played around with surrealism in high school and college. I played around with space art. I played around all this stuff. But the problem with surrealism is it always has this nightmarish quality to it. That's one of the one of the best one of the identifiers of what is surrealism. I had never run across Rene Magritte, who is just an amazing, an amazing guy. Um, and Ingo was actually quite a devotee of, of Rene Magritte. Um, and I saw Ingo's paintings and I go, that's it. Um, that's exactly what I want to paint. And so once I, uh, once I had the opportunity, I started oil painting. I did some work. I had done a little before, but I got into this. That was the first one I ever did. Okay? First oil painting I ever did. And I thought, I want to do PK'd silverware against a starry background, a space background. And the items, the implements that I was painting were spoons and forks and maybe a knife or two that my ex-wife bent. Um, I'll tell you this story. It involves Tom McNair. And by the way, if you don't know, Tom and I are going to be on a, a, a Zoom call next week celebrating the 1,000th member to my own, uh, my own uh, Facebook group. Um, but uh, Tom and... Faye, his wife, had come over to our house. They lived across the street early on when I first joined the program. And we started talking about spoon bending because I'd become familiar with it earlier, but never tried it. Tom says, well, have you got any silverware you don't want? Well, I'll show you how to do it. And so he proceeded to show us and I proceeded to fail at it. I have never succeeded in bending a spoon, literally, except, you know, forcing it, right? But my ex-wife was a master at it. She did some amazing stuff. And, uh, and then when we went down to visit her sister in Norfolk, Virginia, I taught them how to do it. I can teach it. I've taught lots of people how to do it. I've just never done it myself. And, uh, and Virginia did some amazing things. Um, and then one of those is done by Tom McNair. Uh, was done that night, actually. I can't point him out. They're too far away from the camera right now. But uh, one was done by Charlene Schufelter, who was one of the folks... I have to tell you this story too. I'm sorry. This is a long, a long answer, and I apologize. But so uh, the spoon that Charlene bent is just an amazing thing. She had she had trained with us with Ingo and been in the in the Fort Meade program for about three ish years, and then she was a personnel specialist in the army, and she got an offer of a GS14 job and couldn't turn that down because it was a lot of money compared to what she'd been making. So she was out doing a bunch of that stuff, and she was down in Florida on a on a temporary duty assignment with another army guy. This guy, I think was a Colonel, if I remember, but they were in, in civilian clothes, right? They were in a restaurant and uh, the guy said, I understand you know something about this. So you know how to bend these things. Uh, she said, yeah. And he said, well, here, and he picked up the spoon next to his plate, handed it to her and said, bend this. She says, I can't do this. The restaurant will be, you know, it's their spoon. They're going to be mad if I do that. 
And he said, oh, come on. No, I don't want to. I, I shouldn't. And she kept a hold of it and sort of absentmindedly started playing with it. And then looked down and literally she had turned into a pretzel. And this was plated silver. This was really a very robust spoon, right? And the guy looks at that. The colonel looks at that. And he says, that's cool. Give me that. And he grabs it. And he says, waiter, waiter, something happened to my spoon. <laughs> and, and the waiter goes off, scratches everyone. What the heck, you know? And then Charlene actually later tracked it down and, uh, and got it back from them before they left and gave it to me. And that became one of my subject matter um, silverware as well. And anyway, that's the history of that painting. So, okay, Jimmy still got his hand up. So I apparently didn't bore him to tears. No, that was great. No, that was great. Love hearing stories like that. Um, so my question plays off of uh, Don's. Don made me think of it. Um, so I don't view, but I have uh, a quirk, I guess you could say that I wonder if it hypothetically could be of, could be related to retrieving alphanumeric data. Um, I have a condition, it's not harmful or anything, but I have a condition called synesthesia, mm -hmm. which is where you cross connect different sensory categories and the kind I have, the main kind I have is called a uh, grapheme color uh, synesthesia, where if I look at words or numbers, I automatically see them as colors. But before, and I see the colors before I can even name them. Um, if I look at something random, like the current time on my iPad, it's uh, purple, clear, green. And I see that instantly before I can even have my left brain come up with those names. Let me pause and, you just a second and say, when you say you see colors, is it see them instead of the numbers or do the numbers come through as in those colors? The numbers come through as in those colors. Okay. All right, go ahead. Um, so, I, so I've wondered if you had someone with synesthesia who was doing RV, if they might be able to try to, you know, let's say the tasker says, we're interested in the number on this sign. What color impressions do you have? If that might be a way of circumventing the ordinary left brain processes and allowing more of that information to come through. And I was wondering what you thought of that and if you knew if any research had been done on that I, question. I think that's very clever. No, there's no research on it. Okay. Uh, and that's very clever. Now the question, though, is: Do the colors all rep? Do the numbers always represent the individual numerals? Always represent as a specific color? So they always do. Three okay, is so always three is purple always, for me. Okay, three is always purple. You know what? That would be worth playing around with. It may not pan out, but but it's it's it sounds very intriguing that it might. So um, it sounds like maybe it's a work quality applied prize submission except that you'd have to learn to remote view first. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Okay. That's Thank you. Interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks for that. Uh, next up is Bill. So wait off. Ta Tamara wants to talk, but I think it is somebody else's turn first. But Tamara, at the bottom of your screen, there's a place where you can click under reactions where you can raise your hand and, and there'll be a yellow hand on the screen. Tamara, you get first. That way you don't get missed. Okay, so we'll do Bill, and then whatever orders, we'll get to Tamara eventually. Okay. 
I just have a question on that. I'm not sure at psychotelekinesis where the ability to develop bend spoons and stuff. Is that like a short range effect? Do we any idea how that works? That sounds like that would take a physical force where you'd have to, you know, grab the spoon and do something to it. So um, I think it's Jack Houck who, who talked about there being three levels of, of silverware PK. And, and you're true. It's psychokinesis. You're right. You're right. It's psychokinesis. The three level are first is kindergarten, which is what most people learn, where we actually do have a hold of the implement, right? And, uh, and that's obviously problematic. It's not scientific because who knows if you man, have very strong fingers can bend something, right? Um, the next level up is, I think he calls high school, where you have a hold of it still, but then it does something that you're not manipulating. So if, if in the kindergarten one, you might get a hold of either end of it, you're stroking the, and then all of a sudden you feel like it's ready to bend and you just exert a little bit of pressure and you're able to do all kinds of stuff with it, right? That's the kindergarten version. The high school version is you're holding it, in your finger, right? And then it does something that, where you're not holding onto it. So the classic example of this, and I'll tell you another story. Um, this actually is one I got from John Alexander. Um, so he used to arrange uh, PK parties for, for General Stubblebine, for Burton Stubblebine in uh, his apartment in Alexandria. And Stubblebine invited all of these interesting people, you know, officers from his staff, other, other officers, general officers and stuff, although not too many of them. Uh, and various people, they had magicians come. They had a, a couple of transmediums and, so, and such like that now and again at these PK parties. And one of them, they invited this uh, lieutenant colonel. I don't know that he's on Stubblebine's staff, but he might have been. But he was a bit of a skeptic, right? And so they're, they're, they're doing the bend, bend, bend thing. And, and one of these, Hauk actually facilitated. And then Alexander learned how to do it. And then they ran it from there. But uh, I don't know if this is the one where Jack Hauk was. But by the way, Jack Hauk was the guy who invented the PK party. He's the guy that came up with this whole spoon bending party thing. Uh, there's more to it. I won't go into that because I'm busy with a different story, right? But um, this colonel who was very skeptical about it, he had his fork. He was going like that and going, doing what he's supposed to do, not expecting he's going to work at all. And, and, uh, and something distracted his attention. He was looking over here. Now the corner of his eye, he saw the fork go like this. And he turned around and looked at it and it went without him just holding on at the bottom. Right. And he, Drops it on the table. He backs up. He says, damn, I wish that hadn't happened. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's high school. And the graduate level is where you um, are able to bend it without touching it. And there's been some, some documented experimenting with that. And I'm blanking on the guy who did it. I, I've met him. I can't think of his name. Uh, he was at uh, Hastings, Arthur Hastings, I think it was, at SRI. Um, he had a kid who was really good at this. And, uh, and when Hastings set the experiment up, he put the metal implement or piece of metal, I think it was these bars of metal, in a uh, glass tube or a glass container with ends on it. So there was no way it could be touched. And he had it watched, had it uh, photographed and videoed. So it was obvious that nobody touched it. And then he had the kid do his thing and, you, and some of the bars, turned into S-shaped kind of thing. And I think some turned around and curved and stuff. And then after the fact, um, Hastings then used uh, cross-section them and used electron, uh, uh, electron scanning microscope, I think, to analyze the structural uh, nature of the 
metal that had been done. And Hastings called this warm forming. It's just PK, but warm forming uh, to have a kind of a non a neutral term for it. And when they cross-sectioned it, um, he, he showed pictures of it. The crystalline structure of the metal was identical to the crystalline structure of the metal that hadn't been impacted, you know, that hadn't been addressed and uh, with, with this methodology. And he also showed what it looked like if you melted it, what it looked like if you actually, uh, you know, use some kind of physical force to bend it or whatever. And they all looked dramatically different. This, this was homogenous and it looked like it had been made that way. So very interesting research. I don't know that it's ever been replicated. So, you know, until it is, you kind of got to say, okay, that's very interesting, but I don't know what to do with it, right? So um, anyway, um, I don't know how far afield I got from your actual question, but. Uh, well, I mean, I just saw you'd be really kind of, kind of neat. It'd be like, could you remotely choke a politician or something? Oh yeah. Well, of course that's what the it, Russians were trying to do. You know, that, and that we were worried about the Russians. And John Alexander actually got hired by Stubblebine to be his, we call him his Twilight Zone officer, right? He got hired, but he had a staff position where his job was to explore all these human potential stuff, right? Alexander. Alexander got that job because he wrote a paper that was published in um, Military Review, which is the the journal for the uh, the uh, Fort Leavenworth. I'm blanking. The Command and General Staff College, right? Um, I was called the Future Mental Battlefield and talked about all thing, things like being able to mentally transport uh, projectiles into the future to blow up an enemy force and stuff like you know all this kind of stuff. One of which was, of course, using it to stop hearts and stuff, you know, and all that. Uh, so a distance, distance assassination, if you will. The Russians were exploring that. We were not, despite what you hear, we were not at least in any of these uh, aspects of the program that I was familiar with, uh, we were not using it as an offensive behavior, although the CIA was interested in this. You can see I, I skip around like a bunny here, but uh, the CIA, when they originally commissioned, put off and, and uh, tarred uh, with a formal program, their first interest is the PK part. You know, when Ingo and, and Hal did the, uh, the uh, cork detector experiment at the, in the physics department at Stanford, um, the CIA was less interested in the remote viewing effect that Ingo had accomplished and more interested in the PK effect that he accomplished because, of course, CIA is more, op well, it's intel and operational, but um, they were interested in seeing if they could actually leverage things out there physically. So an active kind of an intervention on the battlefield or in, a, in an espionage situation or whatever. It turned out that the that the PK was, and, and this is in an SRI report that's been declassified. They reported the CIA there's definitely effect here, but we have no way of controlling it or predicting what's going to happen. It's just totally wild. They didn't say wild, but that's what it amounted to. The PK thing is wild and unpredictable. And, and if you have a, a, a phenomenon like that, there's no way to weaponize it. There's no way to use it uh, in any kind of a na national defense kind of environment. But the remote viewing stuff was much more reliable, much more predictable, and much more manageable. And so that's where they finally went. They started off with VK, it was mostly failed as an effort, and so they went with the remote viewing and had a fair amount of success with that. So, yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I feel like I didn't get to your base question, but whatever. Well, they don't know how that could work, the physics of how that could work. No, and nobody knows. Nobody knows. And in fact, the uh, Pear Lab explored that question in great detail and came up dry. They just presume it's some kind of quantum effect, but that's, that's a hand-wavy answer when you get right down to it. You know, 
what does it mean as a quantum effect? We don't know. You know, we don't know how it ties into, into any kind of quantum physics paradigm. Uh, and in I fact, quant quantum physics is used to explain a lot of things that it actually doesn't explain. So definitely yeah. a strange, bizarre phenomenon, though. Yeah. Well, it's only strange and bizarre from the context of, of, of our current physicalist paradigm, right? Um, in some other context, it might not be strange at all. But since that's our point of reference, and it's weird when it comes to physics. Now, now you'll get skeptics who'll say, well, this can't be true because it violates the laws of physics. And my argument is, if it's not part of the physical world, it doesn't violate anything, right? The laws of physics pertain to physical things. If this is external to the physical world, if it's, a, if it's a part of the consciousness, the sphere of consciousness or whatever, then okay, it doesn't, it doesn't correlate with the physical world, but it certainly doesn't violate anything. Yeah, you know, the only thing to violate a physical principle is a physical principle that doesn't behave the way it's supposed to. So I'm sorry, another soapbox. Okay, I'll shut I'll, up for a minute. I'll say that. I really think we just obviously don't have a complete understanding with time and all that. Once we get it, it will all make sense. So presumably anything really violates the physical laws. We just don't really know what those laws are currently. Well, or it doesn't have anything to do with physics at all. You know? That's right. Yeah. Either we don't know well, we don't. We don't know all the all the parameters of the physical universe. We don't know that. That's the only thing we know is that we don't know that, right? So it's possible there's a physical law that governs it. The indication seemed to be because it isn't compatible with anything physical we know of. Uh, the other possibility is that it's external to the physical world. And, and we have no reason to say that there's nothing outside the physical world. But see, that's what physicalism, I'll get a little phil philosophical here for a moment. Physicalism says that everything is physical or a consequence of physical facts. And that if there's anything that isn't physical, it doesn't exist. That's literally a very simplistic, but, but pretty much thorough description of this physicalist metaphysical doctrine that modern science believes. Okay. How do they arrive at, at the, uh, this conclusion that everything is physical? By, by saying that anything that appears not to be physical must be wrong. They just essentially exclude all the data that contradicts their premise. That's what it boils down to. I mean, I spent I spent 400 pages of my dissertation arguing this point, so I've boiled it down quite small here. <laughs> but but nonetheless, uh, this whole idea that everything is physical, we have absolutely no real justification for believing that. So very interesting anyway. point of view. Say again. Very interesting. Oh, thank you. Thank okay, you. is it Tamara's turn or is it somebody else's turn first? Shall we keep teasing her or? What do you think, Daz? You're you're keeping track. I'm not. Okay. I wish I don't know how long Rich has been waiting, but I apologize if it was your turn. I'll get to you next. I promise. Okay, go ahead, Tamara. Well, I wish I had a question after all that. I I really <laughs> I would have put this in chat, but my question is, um, do you, are you aware of the chat? Because someone earlier said they had to leave, and would you please answer their question? And they'd watch the thing later, oh. and maybe Daz is tracking it. But I just felt like. Yeah, no, I, I, if I sure had to watch, yeah, if I had to watch the chat too, I'd be lost. So, but Daz, yeah. you're tracking it, right? You're good. Okay. Yeah. I asked that question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I want to say that Tamara has 253 cats. Isn't that, isn't that what you have, Tamara? <laughs> no cats. No. no oh. Cats. oh, I'm oh. sorry. Is it uh, gerbils? No, 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 no. <laughs> 
I have, okay. I have 20 some chickens. Oh, there you go. I, I, I forgot. Parents, roosters, and okay. uh, some dogs. Gotcha. Okay, good. So maybe it is Rich's turn now. Yeah. Okay. Okay, there we go. Can you hear me okay, Paul? Yes. Perfect. Uh, thanks for meeting with us again. Uh, so this question is for you uh, and Dad. So What's you're kind of dropping out for me anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, my question is basically, what do you do? What is your routine prior to a session? Do you do anything with binaural meditation? Did you get that, Dev? Uh, I think it was, uh, I caught pits of it. I think he was asking, what is your routine prior to doing an RV session? Mine? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's changed, but I'll, um, if you if you want to know, actually, I talked about it. again my blog, uh, remote perception slash no, sorry, remote viewing slash remote perception blog. If you look that up, I have an article on cool down, okay, and I talk about that. But I'll give you a kind of a brief summary of it. So I used to go over the operations bin. We had two buildings. One, both both of them were old World War II barracks that were all beat up, but. Uh, the office, and then over here we had the, the operation building. And one of the rooms in the operation building was the ERV room. And in there we had a bed. I mean, we were the only, as far as I know, the only operational military unit that had a bed as part of our operational equipment. <laughs> right? So anyway, so we had a bed and, you know, and, and all that. That's where we did the ERV. And I would go in and lay on the, on the bed and, um, and, and I put on my headphones and my Walkman. Actually, it was a knockoff of a Walkman. That's back when these were, you know, new tech, right? And I had a mixtape that had a lot of, you know, ACDC, Rainbow, uh, Bon Jovi, you know, but some Dolly Parton and, you know, a, a, a mix of fairly rousing kinds of music, metal and, and, and hard rock and, and, you know, some pop and stuff. So um, I'd go in and I'd listen to these for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then whoever my monitor was come in and push the door open. And that was my cue. It's time to turn off the tunes and go in and, and sit down at the table. Right. And, um, and I did that. We call, I called it cool down. People say, well, that doesn't sound like cool down, <laughs> you, know, you know, ACDC, any cool down to ACDC. It was, I mean, I would actually start to drift off a little bit. And of course that was valuable because I was a single parent at the time with three kids in elementary school and, and then, you know, most of the housekeeping and, and my painting that I mentioned before got done usually between about 10 o'clock and two o'clock in the morning, you know, so um, I appreciate having a nap every now and again. But anyway, I'd, um, I, I'd go over there and, and do that. And then I'd sit down and, and the, the point of the music wasn't they actually literally cool down. The point was more to psych me up. It's kind of like a, a, a halftime uh, locker room uh, pep talk from the coach, you know, so um, I, this was music that was very, in a way, really made me feel good, you know, made me want to get up and do things, be active and all that, and it encouraged me, because I have to tell you, and you probably all have the same feeling too, I always had doubts whether it was going to work this time, I was never confident, and I still have a problem, I, I kind of got let go of it to the point, and this is what I recommend, if you can reach a state where you don't care if it succeeds or not, but you never totally don't care. But you get to the point where you don't care much whether it succeeds or not. And then you let go, and that's when you have success, right? So I always had these kind of doubts and stuff, and this was a way of kind of psyching me up and overcoming my doubts. 
enough. So I'd sit down and I'd just go through the process and trust that it was going to turn up with something good. It didn't always work. Even then, it didn't always work. But uh, but it worked often enough that they kept me around for seven years. So I guess that's promising in a field where three years is usually the limit of your tour. You know, In the Army, you were never anywhere for more than three years, but I got seven years. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. And Daz, do you, I can't remember when I watched your session. Do you listen to the primary or anything during the session? Sorry, I didn't get that. You're asking what I listen to. Uh, he's asking if you heard, if you listen to uh, binaural beats. Uh, no, I never do. I, uh, to be honest, I, I always listen to music, but it's, it's literally just uh, soundtracks from films. So anything without any words. Um, and at the moment, for the last two years, it's been the uh, the soundtrack from the film Interstellar. So binaural beat question. I do address that to some extent in that blog article I told you about. So. Okay, um, before we go on any in the in the window there, I got some in the chat window. Uh, an early one from Judy Tasker was, I feel monitoring actually enhances future sessions when viewing through the experience from a monitor role. Uh, what does Paul think about that? Okay, run that past me again. She said she feels monitoring actually enhances future sessions when viewing through the experience from being a monitor. Uh, and what do you think about that one? Oh, so in other words, the experience of being a monitor enhances her ability as a remote viewer. Is that, is that what you think she's saying there? Okay. I think that's what she says, yeah. Okay, I have to say that's absolutely true. I mean, I become a, a better viewer by monitoring all of, the, all of the thousands of student sessions I've done over the years since I started my training program. Well, actually, since I started the Army. <laughs> I started training people in 1984, so... You know, uh, that is, it's, it's really helpful to see the mistakes other people make in helping you realize you're making the same mistakes, right? And, and, and then watch how they solve the problem or learn how you help them solve the problem. And that helps you yourself uh, in the future, not make those mistakes or deal with them better. So, yeah. Excellent on that one. Uh, I'll read a couple more of these because we've got quite a few. Uh, Sylvia asks, how does the task vault work? I understand they'll be revealing the target later, but is it ourselves who judge our own viewing or we need it to send it to someone to judge it? Well, tar target vault, vault you're talking about, those of you who don't know what that is, I, I, every, well, now every two weeks, I, I post a target on the major remote viewing forums in, uh, in Facebook. Uh, it's a, it's a, I pass the post attachment, which is a number and some instructions and stuff. And then four or five days later, I will post the feedback. So you have four or five days to work it without any chance of knowing what the actual target is. So it's fully blind. It's uh, it almost doesn't even count as double blind because there's no blind involved, right? It's, you're just blind blind. <laughs> so, so, and so it gives you an opportunity to practice. Um, and yeah, I call that target vault and um, I will, on my remote viewing slash remote perception Facebook group, everything's got that name, right? The Facebook group, um, I will say a comment or two. I try and address everybody. I don't always get there. And some, some weeks I miss it all together just because I got so much going on. But I try and at least give some uh, 
comments and other people in the group are welcome to comment on each other's uh, results so that maybe you can learn from each other that way. Uh, but that's the extent of it. I mean, uh, my students, I'll score their sessions, but I just would never have time to, <laughs> to review these. Now, if there's somebody out there who's an expert and is willing to do it for you, I mean, you can send them anywhere you want. I mean, that's fine with me, but uh, what you will get some comments and some responses on that uh, on my Facebook group. Um, and I'll post it on the other groups. I used to try and respond there too, but it just got all over the place and I just couldn't, couldn't keep it tracked. So I confined it to my group for comments, but I'm happy to have other people give it a stab even out in the other groups if they want. So I think that answers the question maybe, does it? Okay. And the next one from the list is from Pablo. And he said, a quick question. Uh, how did your technical dowsing course come into being? Well, <clears throat> dowsing was an, in, it was an interesting modality that we adopted in the remote viewing program. In fact, even before I got there. So when Joe McMoneagle and Mel Riley and, uh, and, uh, and the other original six were there, they played around with dowsing. Skip actually had a, a little exercise where he would, um, there were these old ammo bunkers. I mean, there's probably two dozen ammo bunkers on the, let's see, it'd be the south side of Fort Meade out in the woods, away from everything. And they weren't used for storing ammunition anymore. The doors were all, you know, unlocked and all that. So Skip would go out and stow something in a bunker and he'd tell them what it was. So one of his favorite thing was a push lawnmower, one of those old, old push lawnmowers, you know. He'd just stick it out there and put it in a bunker. And there was, like I said, I don't know, a dozen or two dozen of these things. And then he would give them a map of the bunker complex and they would have to douse in which bunker the lawnmower was in, right? So they started off doing that and, and they used it for various things. I think he might've used it in the Iran hostage situation to some degree, but they never got really too much involved and they did it a fair amount. But, uh, and then there's some research at SRI that actually produced some interesting results that they did. Uh, but here's the problem, of course, with remote viewing is that it's a descriptive methodology. You can't get an address, you can't get a, a coordinate out of it. So how do you use it to find something that's missing? Um, and uh, generally speaking, the only way to do it is you get a description of the location and then you hope that someone in your circle recognizes it or that they will produce something that's prominent enough that people will, will identify, be able to identify the location. But that's a pretty hit and miss. So dowsing is the a logical alternative because in, in remote view, they're kind of the inverse of each other. In remote viewing, you uh, know what it is, and we're speaking very simplistically, but you know what the target is. You just, no, I'm sorry, I'll get this back. You know where the target is, you don't know what it is, right? So if, if it's a, a building in Soviet Russia, you know where the building is, you don't know what's inside of it, right? And so use remote viewing to kind of describe what's inside of it. But if it's a missing hostage, you know what it is, but you don't know where it is. And that's more of a job for dowsing, right? So you use dowsing uh, and you can use it to find things. And, and, and it isn't always successful. It's like remote viewing. It has its failures. But there have been times when it absolutely did work. We had some really, really successful dowsing sessions that happened at Fort Meade, particularly when we were in the uh, working the counter-narcotics problem. We got brought into that, some of the joint task force like in the, the Caribbean and, and over on the West Coast. Uh, and we did some dowsing and um, there, I have an actual statement from 
uh, not from someone involved in the remote viewing program, as a colonel in the, in the Army's intelligence staff. He, he certified, he said, that uh, contraband was recovered and narco traffickers were captured based solely on the remote viewing data. And much of that was actually dowsing related. So anyway, that, that was the, the antecedent to dowsing. So the interesting story here is that we, there was this air gap between when the early guys were looking for the lawnmower in the bunkers and when we were looking for drug traffickers in, uh, in the Caribbean and hostages in the Middle East. Uh, we didn't do any dowsing for probably four or five year period, I'd say. So we're going in cold turkey and we read some books and we play around a little bit. And I thought, well, we gotta, we got to learn some more about this. And so I found out that there was a chapter of the American Society of Dowsers up in Baltimore, which is when there was no traffic, is about a half hour away from where I live. So I talked to the, the boss and said, you know, I kind of like to go explore these. As long as you don't tell them who you are, you know, <laughs> you can go ahead and see what you can find out. So I went up there and I attended all their meetings and I and I learned some dowsing techniques that then later on I introduced at Fort Meade. And then after a while, I also um, got Gabrielle Pettengel to go along. Some of you know of her, uh, sadly passed away in 2002, but she was an amazing remote viewer, an amazing trainer uh, from, from the military program. Anyway, I got her to come along too, and we're up there. And, and so here I am, uh, you know, attending and Gabi is attending and they, have, they know we're military, but they have no idea what we do in the military. They just assume, assume we were just standard old military people who just happen to have an interest in dowsing. Well, you know, in a, I don't know, after a year or two, their, their officers either moved or couldn't work anymore. So they elected me as president and Gobby as vice president. <laughs> and so we are the administration of this civilian dowsing chapter of the American Society of Dowsers. They had no idea we were psychic spice for the army, mining information from them, you know, to help employ it and actually trying to trying to solve uh, missions for the military. And uh, it was pretty funny. But once that all that got done, I mean, I talked about dowsing as a civilian. I, I taught my basic, I'm sorry, advanced course students some of the dowsing techniques that we had learned uh, in the military and explored in the military. And then I was approached by the same people who do Ed Dames's videos, which that was a problem for me, but on the other hand, they were very insistent and they talked me into it and convinced me that they were going to do a good job and they, they keep me separated from Ed, right? So so I said, I agreed to do it. And so I formed a class. They came and videoed it. Um, and then they they uh, they produced it. And they did the editing and all that stuff. And then they made it available as a product. And it's been quite popular over the years. Uh, I, I hadn't done a live class for a long time. Then I set one up for the spring of 2020. I was going to do it out in, down in Henderson, Nevada, while there was still snow up here. And then, of course, COVID hit, so I had to cancel that class. And I hope to try it again, maybe, I don't know, we'll see when, when the window works out for it. But I'd love to try and do a dowsing class again, uh, a live one. So, But meantime, the DVD is available still. So. I guess that answered the question. Who asked that question anyway? Absolutely. It was me, Paul. Sorry, I, oh. I was not today on video, but thanks for sharing. No, no you're welcome. I'm, I'm glad you asked the question. Thank you. Uh, Tamara, do you, are you, have you got your hand up again? Or Yeah. Go for it then. Okay, thanks, Daz. So um, I noticed when I watch these recordings, questions in chat, don't, you know, they're not recorded. So I'm just repeating this for people. In the future, we had a little conversation there. Paul, um, 
the question Cal had asked in the chat, when you do your target vault, do you, is it double blind or do you know? And my assumption, I was like, oh, you know, he picks the pictures, but he's going to pick random numbers. And then Russell said, no. Anyway, the question is, what's your process? How double blind is it? Is it at all blind? How do you pick the targets? So, so first off, um, remember, I'm not picking the picture. I'm picking an actual location. Okay. The picture is just there for feedback purposes. I, I intend that the viewer go there and remote view it in real time. Okay, the actual target. And I think uh, a lot of the results demonstrate that's what they're doing because they'll produce stuff that isn't actually in the photo, you know, or, or photos if I have more than one. Um, but often it is, of course, because I try and have a representational photo of the thing for feedback. Now, this is fully blind. Okay, fully, so I say fully blind. It's more than double blind. And the reason is this. Yeah, I know what the target is. I'm the only one that knows what the target is. I go out, I decide what the target is. I create the web page for it. I create a separate uh, hard copy file for it because I may use it in some future classes, who knows. And I put that all together. And then Russell gets me a graphic with a coordinate that I designate on it, um, 2103, whatever it is, right? So he'll, he'll provide that. I'll post it on the Facebook post. But see, the fact that I know what the target is doesn't cause any problem with the blinding because I don't have any direct interaction with anybody in that group, right? So all they see is that photo. Uh, I do have occasional written interaction, but it's always like when we're gonna have the feedback or where can I post this, that kind of stuff, which has absolutely no informational content concerning the target. So this is a very legitimately fully blind, more than double blind uh, experience, experiment, whatever. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Is there anything else you wanted to know about it? Well, it was really Cal's question, so let me just oh. uh, shut up and see if he ha if it does. Okay. Well, my damn, uh, Paul, you sent me for such a loop that I'm like, damn, I don't really understand fully your your answer. Um, oh. And I'm sorry, I just want to understand how is it double blind? I know you're telling the truth. I'm just trying to figure out the the aspects of it. Okay, so the rule for double blind is that the viewer cannot know what the target is in advance or during the session, and that anyone physically or associated with the viewer or associated in any way that they that there's a danger of conveying unwitting information knows what the target is. Okay, so as long as those conditions are met, you've got double blind. In this case. I know what the target is, but I don't have any association with anybody in the process that would be such that I could convey information inadvertently to them. Or even, I could do it intentionally, but that would be obvious because it's all in public, right? So, uh, but none of the, my interactions with people who are doing the session uh, on Facebook pages uh, is of any sort that would allow that information, uh, inadvertent information to be uh, passed along. It just doesn't work. So that makes it double blind, more than double blind, actually. All this okay. time, I thought double blind was even in your conscious awareness, you're not aware of the target. So there's no mind-to-mind -mind thing. The double blind just means yeah, you, interaction. You, so you might as well forget worrying about the mind-to-mind -mind thing. And the reason is, is because somebody somewhere in the loop knows what it is. And if telepathy is a real thing, if it's a real thing, then it's non-local and it doesn't matter who knows what it is in the chain. If the viewer is going to get it that way, they will, right? 
So you just have to ignore that whole possibility. And in fact, it generally works pretty well and suggests that it doesn't, if it does happen, it doesn't happen very often, okay? Uh, the, the, the exception is when there is no target, Daz knows about this, you know, when there is no target or when there's a fantasy target, and then the telepathic overlay thing comes in because the subconscious has no other alternatives except to go for the fantasy or make something up, right? So anyway, so, okay, go ahead, Cal. Well, it's going way off in a direction I never expected. So to un understand what you're saying correctly, when I work targets or I teach targets to, you know, volunteer teaching to a person where we will go to a page where I have no idea who made that page, even though I know many people that have made pages, I don't know who made that one. And I never worked those targets Yeah. in, because in, I know, sorry, people that don't know, but I do know that telepathy does exist. And of course I read about it too, in mind to mind by Rennie Warcolier and things like this. But wow. so when I'm trying to find targets on the internet, uh, that are double blind for my students or for myself. Uh, am I understanding correctly what you just said? They're essentially they're not double blind because I'm on Facebook. I know who created Facebook. They know who knew who to offer the service to someone. Someone came on Facebook. Use in other words, that kind of skipping effect um, makes it um, essentially double blind so or not double blind. The, in the technical definition of double blind, the scientific definition of double blind, it doesn't take telepathy into account. It only has to do with the ability to transfer through some physical sensory element information. And so when I say double blind, that's what I'm talking about. When it comes to possibility of non-local communication of some kind, well, I mean, it's, it's possible, it's likely, but the problem is if that's how you're getting your information, you're not really remote viewing, right? And in fact, not only you're not remote viewing, but you're actually not doing the job the remote viewer, should, at least an operational remote viewer should do. Because if you're getting your information from the tasker's mind, you're not getting anything new. It's not gonna help the problem, right? And so you need, and you can, I am absolutely convinced you can, if you find out that you're vulnerable to telepathic overlay, you can train yourself not to do that. You can train yourself you focus on the target, the target becomes everything, and that leaves all of that other nonsense behind. And, and for some people, that may be a learning thing. I seem to have generally picked it up myself. You know, I mean, occasionally, I think I've seen the elements of, of telepathy involved, but it's a very rare thing. And uh, it, that changes when you get to the point where, again, if there's no target. I mean, that's the famous example I use. Let's say, uh, there's a remote viewing event that people are always talking about, but it turns out there was never at a, such a remote viewing event. It's all, uh, you know, social fantasy, right? So somebody targets you on that and has this true belief about what the, what the, the about the event. You go there, your subconscious says, there's nothing here. Well, what's the next most powerful psychic signal? Oh, it's this thought about the event. And so you go and you pick it out of the tasker's mind because you don't have anything else to put in there and you have telepathic overlay. Now, Daz did an experiment where he made something up, and that was what he focused on, and, and that's what people got, you know, because there wasn't a real there there. There was just this notional thing. As long as you do the tasking right and you do the target, target choices right, and there's a real target, it really, in my opinion, really significantly minimizes the possibility of telepathic overlay. So uh, it, you got that? I mean, are you? Are oh, you, yeah, 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 yeah. It's perfectly clear. Thank you. And, okay. and uh, I was kind of, there's two quick points. One, uh, I've tried 
teaching people or, or even practicing notice, practicing sessions where there's a bit of front loading and I've tried it where it's double blind. And I, over the years I've convinced myself that the double blind just, I do better. And so do they, but mm -hmm. who knows, because I only have a 30 people test group as far as whether it worked better with them or not. And they weren't that good. Also mm -hmm. the, the, I don't mean all of them, but I mean, somewhere I didn't have a, a control group a correct control group. And, and then the other thing is, is this telepathy thing. I'm working your targets right now. And, and I mean, you know, after the session, whatever. And, uh, and so I, I often believe that, because again, I know telepathy is real. I just can't do it perfectly all the time. So when, when I'm doing a, a session, who knows how much I may be getting from this person or that person or whatever. Well, I can but tell you how much you're getting from me. Nothing. <laughs> because I post the target and then literally I forget what it is. I have to go back and look it up when it's time for feedback. What was that target? <laughs> you know, I have to go back yeah. because I've done so many that I can never remember what it is until I look it up again, right? If you are going to be reading my mind, you'd be getting all kinds of things about a bathroom remodel that's going on in my house, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'm going out to the range. And in fact, I was going to show Daz one of my AR-15s, but I thought it would panic some of the folks in the audience. So I decided <laughs> not to put it on camera, you know. So <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, you get all kinds of stuff. It had nothing to do with the target, right? So, Which I do, of course, as a, normal as a normal session, you make mistakes. So how do you know where the errors came from and really who cares? So thank you, uh, Paul. You bet. You bet. So um, nobody has their hand up. I'll say something, Kiao. So when Paul has me create the tasking, I have no idea what no, it is. He doesn't. He gives me a number. If people look carefully at that number, the date is embedded in it. And when I put it out there, the primary graphic that you draw your, I have no idea. And so in that sense, I mean, it's it's purely double blind. And as Paul says, now that I've tasked a lot of people and, and gotten some sense of monitoring and worked with several people in person, um, I literally forget what it is myself. My mind is blank. I'm looking at the number. I'm like, eek, what is this target? So trust um, me, that happens a lot with Russell. So yeah, I see eek all the time. But anyways, so Kiao, the process <laughs> Double blind. It's it's protected. Yeah. Okay, we have loads more questions, so I'll try to run through some here. Uh, Russell Roberts asked if Paul is ever bilocated, and what does he think happens at that moment? So yes, I have bilocated at least once that I know of that was very definitively bilocation. Um. I write about this. Actually, I, I write a fairly extensive account in it in my book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, which if you guys want to check out, I recommend. Um, I don't get any money for it anymore, so feel free to steal it or whatever. I don't care. But but I do talk about uh, my bilocation experience in there. Um, and it happened outside of a remote viewing session. I was, I was, uh, it was in New York, and I was walking uptown, and I went to a Barnes & Noble bookstore up there. And I found a big stack of, of paperback copies of Mind Reach by Target Putoff, which is a classic. And I thought, I'm going to get these and, and we'll hand them out to each of our new recruits that come in the door. You know, they're a buck a piece or something like that. So I have this big stack of Mind Reaches. And this was November in New York City and uh, weather front had come through and there's snow in the air. And I had left my jacket 
back at the hotel. So I'm walking along the shirt sleeves freezing. The session I had done that morning was uh, Kwajalein Atoll in the Pacific. So it's, you know, South Pacific Island, palm trees, sand, you know, a few holes in it from atom bombs, but we won't think about those. Uh, anyway, so, and as I'm walking down the street and it's really blustery and cold, uh, I'm thinking about that island. I'm thinking, wow, that was nice and warm. And that was, and I literally lost consciousness of being on a street in New York. And I was feeling sand in my toes. I was feeling the palm tree swing. I was feeling this just beautiful breeze. And I almost fell over, literally. I staggered along the sidewalk and almost dropped my books. Um, I'm going, what the heck? So next day, I'm back at the office. I tell Ingo about it. Ingo says, you idiot. I don't think he said idiot, but he said something like that. You idiot. You're not supposed to revisit the site after you're done with the session, you know? And he pointed out that's by location. He'd lectured us on it. And Ingo discouraged by location to that extent, especially. There's probably always a little bit of by location because you're collecting sensory experience from the target. But generally speaking, you want to keep yourself planted in the here and now and just extract information from the target. Because as soon as you bilocate, you stop reporting. And the goal of remote viewing is to bring information back. Okay. You bilocate, you enjoy your visit and all that stuff, and you come back and then you say, now what was it I was experiencing? And you write down a few things. You don't get anywhere near as much data as you would if you were reporting consistently as you went along. So he discourages from doing that. What is happening? Well, the experience itself is like being in a deep daydream, okay? Uh, you, you, you've all had this experience. You've been sitting there next to the friends, and, and you just kind of start thinking about something else. You're thinking so deeply about it that you lose track of being here. Your friend says, hey, hey, where'd you go? You know, what's going on, right? It's, it's that kind of a feeling, but you are very much immersed in being at this target, the experience, the sensory experience of being in the target. So... Um, I discourage my students from doing it as well because you're just not doing your job if you do. And so, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I don't know what more else to say. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and a question from Cedric is, uh, has anything you've seen on any esoteric targets over your extended career affected your day-to-day uh, your -day life? No, not really. Um, the problem with esoteric targets, first off, is, of course, you don't know what the truth content is, right? You do an esoteric target. I call them anomaly targets, but any word will do. Um, is that generally speaking, you're dealing with a target there's no feedback available for. And um, I just thought I'm an exception to this, but I'll, I'll tell that in a second. There's no feedback for you. don't know whether it's imagination, AOL, whatever, right? And, and, and you can't know that if there's no available feedback, which is why I very much discourage students from doing these anomaly targets because you do not strengthen your remote viewing skills by remote viewing something you can't get feedback on. All you do is compound mistakes or make no progress at all. So if you're going to do anomaly targets, wait until you've got your skills down competently and then don't do them exclusively. Also do regular feedbackable targets just to keep your hand in. When we were at Fort Meade, Operationally speaking, you almost never or very frequently, let's say very often you don't ever get feedback on a remote on an operational target. Either they can't resolve it or the feedback is so classified you can't even know about it or whatever. And so you don't get it. Or if you do, it's sometimes 
years in the future when you get that feedback finally, because it takes a long time to resolve some of these situations. So um, in order to keep us from losing our edge, we regularly worked just regular old operational style targets for which there was feedback. And it's essential to do that, even if you do have experience or out there doing this kind of thing, uh, you know, the, the uh, anomaly kinds of targets. Now, that wasn't the total answer. What, what's the rest of the question? Right, let me interrupt that there. I think that's a good thing. That way you're checking yourself to make sure you're not getting yeah. wrong results. Yes, right. Good uh, thing to check yourself. Yeah, yeah, you should always do that. Now, the, what was the actual question? I didn't get to the core of that, I don't think. To be honest, Paul, I've moved on. I'm, I'm, re I'm reading other ones right down the list. Okay, well, that's probably enough of an answer then for now. Uh, I have one here from Rich. It might be a bit controversial, but see how you want to answer it. He says, Paul, my remote viewing lineage is through John Vivanco, then Prudence Calabrese, Courtney Brown, then up to Ed Dames. The more I'm in this community, I get the feeling that Ed Dames is a little different in his philosophy and methodology than the rest of you guys. Is this true? If so, what did he not teach that I should perhaps know that would be good to know? Okay, so um, I don't know if I can answer this question without getting too derogatory about people, and I, I want to avoid that. But Ed Dames definitely is kind of the odd man out uh, from the field, and it's because... How can I say this? Um, it's because his imagination quotient far exceeds any other aspect of his of his personality, I guess. Um, I don't know. That's not even very complimentary. Well, I can't be complimentary. Um, he, yeah, it's, it's he, he certainly rapidly divorced himself from the mainstream of the CRV approach. Uh, he, he doesn't teach really what he teaches isn't, doesn't really have much of a resemblance at all to what Ingo taught us all back then. And so, um, you know, I mean, you say maybe his method works, people swear by it. Some people say they have really good results. So from that perspective, I certainly, uh, my bottom line is if it's, if it works, then, then it's, oh, you know, didn't do it. You know, if it works then do it. Now we don't have a measure to say which method works better than any other because remote viewing is notoriously hard to measure. Um, so I can't even say if, what, if the Ingo style remote viewing works better than Ed Dames' approach. I can't say that, but, but uh, it, the only thing I can authoritatively say is that he has diverged dramatically from the Ingo approach. And so, you know, uh, uh, I think to be honest, most of the community are, are slightly divorced from him more so because of his predictions on coast to coast radio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a question from Yale. Uh, she has um, a question related to what Kiao asked earlier. She says, Aren't we supposed to feel like we're in a trance state while we're remote viewing and connecting to the signal line? No, actually. Um, people often ask me, and of course, there's two perspectives I can address the ERV and the CRV. So, from the CRV perspective, uh, you start off in a fully body awake, mind awake state, right? No altered state whatsoever. And a, a very interesting observation that hadn't occurred to me, but I owe this to PJ Gaynor, so pa Palin Gaynor, who many of you know about. Um, she made the observation at one point, and I said, that's exactly right on, is that the CRV methodology, one of its functions is to actually induce a mild altered state of consciousness. 
the deeper into the session you get, the more of a, it's never a trans-like, but you certainly get closer to that. Um, I, I say there's a technical term in remote viewing, you get a little dingy, right? It doesn't translate out of American very well, I don't think. But anyway, you get just a little loopy, you know, uh, by the time you're done with a, a, a CRV session. In fact, um, Skip would usually say once we're done with the session, he'd notice that we were kind of like this, you know, he'd say, go out and hug a tree, right? So the goal was we we're in this copse of, uh, of um oak trees, you know, a little stream and, pat and grassy areas around you. You go out and walk around in nature for a while to let your head clear. Sometimes I go swim laps of the pool or whatever after a session. And, uh, and it's because it does induce this mild state of consciousness. Um, it's a little bit more the case in ERV. The goal there is to set up and establish a hypnagogy state. So you're laying down. We started off, used to use uh, hemisync focus 10 or focus 12 tapes to to kind of get this hemi-sync sort of a, a thing going. Uh, but it ain't to, anyway, you, you want to achieve a, a kind of a mind-awake body-asleep state. You're very relaxed. You're right on the edge between sleep and, and waking. And uh, and then the then the monitor comes in and starts debriefing you, right? So um, that when you're, you're still not fully trans because you're still aware of your surroundings, your setting and all that stuff. Um, and in fact, it seems to work better if you're not out of it again because you can report you know because you can you can uh, real time say what's going on what you're perceiving what you're thinking right okay that's the best i can say okay i'm nearly finished with the questions in the chat I've got one more here at the moment from theo he says apart from the fact he's now sitting there trying to bend a spoon <laughs> Uh, there are many release uh, uh, there are many released documents from crv erv and wrv sessions where phonetics are declared in the summaries. Could you explain the technique of how you got the phonetics and targets at Fort Meade? Well, um, that's probably more or less stage seven. Um, and, and, you know, obviously CRV, I'll, I'll get off on a different soapbox here for a minute before I come back to that. Uh, you, hear, you hear some people out there who think all RV is CRV, and it's not, you know. CRV is just a mode. It's a package to put around this wild talent that all humans have, right? It's a package to put around it to kind of control it and direct it. You can think of it like this. If you have a swimming pool full of water, uh, it's great for swimming in, but if your house catches on fire, the swimming pool isn't going to do you much good. What you need is a pump and a hose to direct that water, right? You can think of CRV as the pump and the hose to develop pressure and direction so that you can use it in a specific way, okay? But the underlying water is the same no matter what the modality is, okay? So um, so don't get fixed to the idea that CRV is the be-all and end-all. It just happens to work really well, um, particularly for transferring this knowledge, this skill to people who are otherwise naive to the ability, okay? And that's why Ingo developed originally, Ingo and Hal, is the idea was so you could transfer what experienced remote viewers could do, transfer it to someone who had not had that experience and have them develop the skill uh, more quickly. And I think it does that. I think it does that very well. Okay, now I swore I wasn't gonna forget the question and I proceeded to forget the question. What was it again? It was, uh, could you explain the technique, uh, how people got phonetics in targets? Oh, right, stage sevens, right, yes. yeah. Okay, so um, the reason I gave you that big soliloquy there was because 
Um, lots of the phenomena that you encounter in, in CRV and that are labeled as parts of stages, right, such as stage seven, are really real-world phenomena that's kind of scattered in your average uh, uh, trial and error remote viewer who's learned how to do it in trial or psychic even for that matter, right? So you'll see it in lots of, see what an equivalent of stage seven in a lot of modalities, but it's kind of been formalized in remote viewing to the extent it has been, thanks to the work that Tom McNair and Ingo did together. Um, and so uh, Ingo, I'm only gonna say this very shortly because Tom's gonna give a whole lecture on this at Marty's uh, thing, Marty's conference coming up in, in May. Uh, Ingo, in, in conversation I had with him, said essentially what it is is extension of stage two. In stage two, you hear sounds, but it's hard to differentiate them. By the time you get into stage four and stage six, the apertures opened up, as I said before, the apertures opened up, and you get a better grasp on the stage two experiences you're getting. At that point, you can start to differentiate the sounds as opposed to just saying there's a ringing sound here or whatever. You can now say, I'm hearing some sounds and then the idea is you try and form the sound that you're hearing and then try and determine what sequence of letters will can represent that sound on the page. And hopefully, if you're tied in, if you're on, on in line online sufficiently, on signal line sufficiently, then what you are managing to hear will give you a close approximation of the actual name or whatever it is of the target. So. Great answer, yeah, yeah. We have one more in the chat and then we, we'll finish it with a few others if anyone's got any ones that yeah. they need to ask. Yeah, uh, and the last one in the chat here was, soon, so. yeah. uh, was there a target that you were, that you wish you had not? No. There's some that were uncomfortable, I guess, but, um, but no, there's none I've ever regretted, I don't think. I mean, I regretted some of the anomaly ones in a way because it felt like they were lost of time, a, a waste of time. Uh, but they're fun to talk about now. So I guess even that they've turned out to be useful. Um, yeah, and, and by the way, that takes me back to a uh, question that was answered. Two, two things I wanted to get before we left. First of all was Keo mentioned uh, Rene Wachelier's book, Mind to Mind, okay? and how uh, that's one of the reasons he, he, he thinks of, of, in terms of telepathy. I think Warcalier was wrong. And I think uh, Upton Sinclair was wrong as well. His book, uh, Mental Radio, both uh, Warcalier and, and Upton Sinclair uh, referred to this phenomena as that they were exploring as telepathy, right? And, and back then that's frankly pretty much the main thing that people were researching was telepathy when you talk about ESP. But remember, in order for it to work, the, the sender, as they were calling them, because they were assuming a telepathic model, had to actually make a drawing that was then sent, supposedly telepathic. I think they were just remote viewing. I think that's what they're doing. I don't think there was telepathy involved. It was, it was a version of remote viewing where the receiver, if you will, was actually remote viewing the sketch that was being produced. Now, can I prove that? No. There's no way to prove it, but but I I really think that's what was happening. Is it was a tell, it was a remote viewing experiment, an early remote viewing experiment. And if you look at what Warcali was really good at reporting stuff, uh, and if you looked at it, Ingo actually got a lot of his ideas about AOL when he formed the the theory about AOL from what Warcali was observing in his experiments, and uh, 
it was brilliant. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. It really was. Okay. So now what was the other thing? Oh, somebody asked if I ever did an anomaly target that changed my life, I think, or something like that. And I was saying, no, no, no. And then I remembered I did have a project and I can't tell you more about this, but involved an an incident that was, I don't think the same was the Tic Tac, but it was a Tic Tac incident, right? And this was done in a really, a real actual bona fide contractual situation. And I, I can't tell you more than that, except that I knew I was working with a real event and I knew I, was, I and, and it wasn't just me, it was some other folks too, that we were working with a real event and that the, what feedback we got was real, okay? And uh, I also knew it was UAPs afterwards. I didn't know at the time, I knew it was UAPs. And that moved me from being what I like to call as a, as a, uh, uh, a friendly agnostic in terms of UFOs to a being absolutely sure that they exist. Okay. So that, that's the one instance that did make a difference. Okay. So uh, was there something? Was there I think we've question? done most questions. I, I just have one myself. Um, well, I think there was one or two hands out there in between some stuff. So maybe there's more, but go ahead with yours, Steph. Yeah, there's none up at the moment. But if, if anyone got any questions, they can quickly put their hands up as well. Um, the, the, the main theory from uh, people like Heb May and Joe McMoneagle and a few others are that the whole remote viewing phenomenon is we are actually, it's all precognitive when we're remote viewing stuff from the future. I just, I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Okay, well, obviously some of it is. There's no question that some of it is. But all of it is, well, first of all, it's very hard to prove a generalized statement like that. But I think there are counterexamples. And that's why it's hard to, to, uh, to defend a generalized statement because even one counterexample will prove false, right? But there are a few. Um, a couple involved Pat Price. He had a couple of remote viewing sessions uh, over his time being active for which he, people thought he had made mistakes, that he was wrong in some of the things he produced. And only after he was dead was it determined that he had been ab- absolutely right after all, okay? So there's nothing for him to precognitively remote view in that setting, right? He was dead before any, any feedback was known by anybody. <clears throat> and so that's a, those are two counterexamples, there may be more of them, right there, okay? Now there's others as well. Uh, there are plenty of um, instances at Fort Meade where the viewers um, reported on operational targets that they never got feedback for, uh, and it turned out they were right. So how were that? How was that precognitive, right? So um, I, I, you know, there are some cases where you can't rule it out. I'm not saying it's totally wrong. The only thing is totally wrong is to make a generalization that says it all is. I think that there's counter evidence to say that that's not true okay excellent thanks that paul uh we've been here two hours now i don't want to keep paul too much longer because it's, it's hard talking for this long are there any last questions anyone have an itch that they want to ask i believe brett has one in the question panel brad does anyone uh know where it is because it's quite a big panel we've gone through now i'm like, gonna say it Paul, Paul, is your anomaly, anomaly target the Trident missiles, uh, missile system or ball of white light deactivation? Obviously, you cannot confirm or deny if 
if you cannot confirm or deny, we, we understand. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure what that question is. He said your anomaly target, is it, uh, was it the uh, Trident oh. missile system, ball of white light deactivations? Oh. No. Right. Uh, as, I mean, I think from a classification standpoint, I could probably talk about it now, but I signed this horrendous NDA, non-disclosure agreement, that has not been rescinded yet. So, um, so I don't want to get myself in trouble by speaking too early. So if, it ever, if I ever confirm that I'm no longer held by it, I will speak about it. Was it for Richard? I don't know who Richard is. Uh, oh, I thought it might be the, the, the Richard targets that you did with someone. Never mind. Okay. All right. Uh, with, with Ingo. Oh, uh, you know, it didn't have anything to do with Ingo. No. Yeah. Any last questions from you guys? I want to say hi to Joff. I didn't get a chance to say hi, Joffrey. And I'm really proud of him. He's wearing my T-shirt. <laughs> I was happy to have one big enough to fit him. Joff is the big guy and I'm and muscular. <laughs> I wouldn't say muscular, but yeah, I thought I would, <laughs> I, I thought I would represent so, yes, yeah. good job. And Russell has my hat on. That's so, I mean, right. what's, yeah. what's not to like about that, right? A good swag. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry I wore you guys out. but I think that's it for the question, Paul. And, you know, on behalf of everyone here, I want to thank you for taking the time and, and being so candid with all your answers. It's, it's great knowledge. Well, as you can tell, I like to talk. So, I appreciate the opportunity. So, before we drop off, I wanted to say what a Nice guy, Dr. Smith is. He just seems like a kind of guy you could just hang around at your barbecues and everything else. You had me a barbecue. <laughs> hey, Bill, I would just say don't make your mind up too fast, okay? <laughs> well, one last thing. I don't know if y'all are into racing, but at Bristol, they're racing on dirt this weekend. That ought to be entertaining. Race, huh? I shouldn't have said that, but they haven't done it in quite a while. So they put dirt down on that short track. So that should be an entertaining. Should oh, be yeah. a lot of action what's, this Sunday. What's the rate? The race you kind of uh, dropped out right when you said it. I uh, said so the, the NASCAR race at Bristol. Oh. They're running oh. dirt at oh, uh, Brist a really Bristol, short Tennessee? track. Bristol, Tennessee. That's right. Oh, okay. All right, I'll keep yeah, that in mind. This will be a lot of action. This won't be the standard. Well, they race around the tracks. This should be a lot. This should be entertaining. Kind of a cross between I'm, I'm, regular NASCAR and a demolition derby, sort of in there somewhere. I'm sorry. I, I, said, I get kind, your question. Kind of a cross between a regular NASCAR and a demolition derby, sort of in there somewhere. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> I should have brought that up, y'all. But, I mean, this is something they haven't done in a long time. They brought in all this dirt line the track. What a great target that would have been, except now we're front-loaded. <laughs> okay. I should have. I apologize. I'm no, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Wait, Wait but, Bill, there's, it's supposed to rain. Well, that Isn't it? You know what? You might be right. So that what rains and racing doesn't work. It becomes bog racing. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, this really weird weather where it's between cool and hot, really stormy. 
So my son, my son lives in Birmingham, and that big tornado that took out the Eagle Point thing missed his house just by a few hundred yards. Oh my God! Yeah. And I mean, what those things are scary storms because I've known two people that the storm hit their house and took everything but the closet they were in. That's fortunate, though. But what a wonderful way to spend a Friday evening. Love you guys. Thank you. Thank Enjoy. you, Paul, Daz, Russell, Bill, yeah. Thanks, everyone, Thank for you. attending. Also, must every Friday. <laughs> Take care, we'll everyone. Have a good weekend, guys. Thank and you. Thanks, right. Hey, Russell. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out RemoteViewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.